The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everybody from the metro New York area. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another issue and uh, program on Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. One of the uh, most popular topics that we've entertained over the course of these years in uh, discussing matters of archaeology is the entire question of human origins. And we've done a number of programs on the topic. We've dealt with issues on evolution, the emergence of hominid forms or bipedal forms, uh, forms that walk on two feet. And we have discussed these matters to a large degree in conjunction with the exponential advances in the field that have occurred over the past 10 to 15 and 20 years. And the theories that even uh, somebody like myself was learning way back in the early days of, of uh, this type of uh, discussion, this kind of this type of research, our, our theories are constantly being turned on their heads in part of advances in analytical methodologies, but also because of discoveries that have occurred at a much higher rate than they have in any other area of archaeology, and they certainly have so much to tell us about our origins, the development of the human condition, and our lifeways. One of the most pivotal excavations that has occurred over the past couple of years is an excavation in uh, South Africa that is called the Rising Star Cave. And the Rising Star Cave excavations were a multidisciplinary operation that in many ways reflect some of the major advances in hominid evolution. And uh, one of the, the real major questions that's sort of being entertained right now is how carefully we can identify and separate the genus Homo. And in that connection, this becomes a very fundamental issue and one that really gets to the very sources of human origins. Uh, one, My guest today, I'm proud to say, is one of the excavators and one of the persons on the expedition of the Rising Star Cave. Uh, my guest is um, Dr. Uh, 
Scott Williams, who is an assistant professor of anthropology at New York University right here in New York. And his interests are in human evolution through the examination of the fossil record. And he's interested in postcranial remains, which reflects the body below the skull. And <clears throat> as many um, paleoanthropologists or people who study human origins are, are interested in, he also is focused on changes in the environment and their relationship to locomotion and general adaptation and development of the human condition. Scott, welcome to the program. Hi, Joe. Thanks for having me. Tell us, please, about the excavations at Rising Star, how they came about, how it was discovered, and uh, how you got involved in it. Sure. So the first thing I'll say, actually, is that I did not excavate. Um, Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, that's okay. I was there um, identifying fossils, but the unique context of this site uh, was such that I couldn't actually go down into the lower chamber where these fossils were found. Um, I got involved because I'd been working with a paleoanthropologist in South Africa named Lee Berger, uh, who had discovered this site, uh, who had discovered another species in 2008. This is a, a species called Australopithecus sediba. And he'd found that uh, they, the paper, the new species, was named in 2010. Uh, and basically, Lee got together with this African, South African caving society, these guys who go out and explore caves in South Africa. Uh, they're essentially professional spelunkers. Right. And said, hey, look, guys, if you come across any bones or fossils that look like this, that look like hominin fossils, those members of our human lineage, uh, let me know. Take some pictures and let me know. And it just so happens that uh, in October of 2013, uh, a few of these guys squeezed themselves into this narrow, down this narrow passage in a football field's length into a cave and basically discovered these remains in this lower chamber. Uh, and so Lee quickly organized a team of scientists um, to come down there to South Africa from all around the world, um, both to excavate, which is what six women, uh, professional archaeologists and paleoanthropologists, uh, who had climbing abilities, the ability to climb in caves, uh, could do it well, uh, had excavation experience, and most importantly, could actually fit into this lower chamber. Ah, uh, that was an one, issue. Exactly. At one point, the the crack, the crevice leading down to this chamber narrows to about to just over a foot. Uh, so you've got to squeeze yourself through that. And I probably could have done it. I'm not a very big person, but I don't have the caving experience to do so. So I stayed right. on the surface, actually, and with a couple of other scientists, uh, basically got the fossils as they came out, identified them, sorted them, and that sort of thing. But I wasn't the one down there doing the actually dangerous work. My understanding is that the chute that leads to this lower chamber is like about 12 meters long and vertical? Yes, it is. It's a, it's a near vertical chute. Uh, that's what it was nicknamed, the chute, which is a pretty appropriate name for it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's this crevice that just drops off into the blackness. I mean, I saw it. I, I, I went in the cave up to that point um, and looked down it. And that was enough for me. Uh, but these, <laughs> the, the six women, archaeologists and paleontologists, went down there every day in shifts. Uh, right. crawled down there, worked on the fossils, brought them out in mining bags, so crawled back out with those bags attached to their ankles. Uh, and it's, a, it's no easy journey getting to that either. It's 
basically a football field's length of, of climbing and squeezing yourself through other crevices to get there. But let me ask you this. Um, the guys who found it, were they that small that they could sort of wiggle their way through it? I mean, how, it, how did so they it's find it? not just about being tiny. It's also about you know, being able to squeeze yourself and being willing to do that. Yeah, right. Um, but, yeah, so Lee Berger, who found this, is a, is, a, is a tall, large individual. He couldn't fit. He really wanted to go in there, but there's no way he was going down there. Well, that's um, what I was getting at. Yes, yeah, so Lee never went down there. Um, the head archaeologist, or the, I'm sorry, the head geologist on this team, the lead author on one of the papers, uh, was too big to fit. They right. did, it managed to squeeze a small geologist down there. Um, <laughs> so it's not okay. just being small, it's also being athletic enough to get down there and be able to sure. support and I under- these areas. And I understand that you need spelunking ability, but as you probably know, there is now uh, a variety of different methodologies and camera types and equipment that allows you to actually set set a, a pole down into into the chamber and to actually look. It's sort of like uh, oh, for yeah. medical technology. So you guys were able to see what's going on on the bottom based on some of your equipment, correct? Exactly. We had all sorts of wires going down there. We had uh, not only cameras, which, which were throughout the cave system, and lights, of course, so they could see as sure. they activate, but also uh, 3D laser scanners to scan right. the surface of the ground before they were excavated. And you could probably convert all this information into computer programs and get printouts and, and exactly. do all of that stuff at this point. Okay, so they're down there, and they, they're excavating. And how long were they down there, and how much, how much material did they get? So they were down there for three weeks. This was in November of 2013. Um, every day. So every day they were down there. They went in shifts of about five hours and switched out, two of them at a time. Um, and... Basically, it was a, at first was relatively slow. So they went down, and the, the context of that lower chamber is very unusual and unique in hominin paleoanthropology, hominin paleontology. Uh, basically, the, the floor of the cave was littered with basically surface finds of these fossils. Mm-hmm. So they walked along and just picked these up, about 300 of them, right on the surface. No excavation uh, besides picking them up, essentially. You know, hominid fossils? Hominid fossils? 300 fragments. Yeah, but were they hominids or were they also scavengers, et cetera, et cetera? This is what makes it unique. They were all hominids. Wow. So 300 hominin, def- definitive hominin fragments just on the surface. Now, that is unique. It's very unique because most of these sites that where paleontologists work, 95, maybe 99.9% of what you find are... Right. Fossils belong to other mammals or other animals. Scavenged material. Right. Exactly. So these guys have, not only were there no other uh, faunal remains, animal remains, uh, at least large animals, there are about half a dozen rodent incisors Mm -hmm. and part of an owl skeleton that may have gotten in that lower chamber relatively recently. Other than that, it's all hominin. Okay, it's extremely so unusual it. in that regard. So they're working, and you're saying at the beginning of the excavation, the fi- it was very relatively slow, and then I assume that the density just sort of shot up? or And then something. it picked up, and then it yeah. shot up. So what they did, once they picked up the stuff on the surface, is they concentrated on one small area of that lower chamber. Right. About the size of the bottom of a uh, telephone booth. And that was nicknamed... Uh, 
the the matchbox because they were basically long bones, so bones of the leg and arms just sticking out of the ground. Right. Looked like matches coming out of a box. So they concentrated on that area, and that's where they spent the remainder of that three weeks, just in that small area. And they and went the, down 10 mm-hmm. inches. And ten. in that 10 inches and about the size of a, uh, the bottom of a phone booth uh, came an additional uh, approximately 1,200 fossil fragments. And they did point proveniencing and all the detailed kind of recordation that's being yep, done of course. these days, right? Yep. All that okay, so every time something came out, it was scanned, everything was recorded. So just to give people sort of a sense of how these types of excavations proceed, especially under these circumstances, you change, obviously, you're, you're changing your strategy a little bit every day because of the accessibility issues and uh, just a tremendous, I would imagine, a maze of logistical issues that you had to deal with. Oh, yeah. And um, so you go ahead and you'd run a first season in 2013. Yeah. And what happens after the first season? What are you reconstructing and how are you interpreting these materials? That's a great question. So what happened basically is it was we left it in November. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lee Berger, the, the man, the guy in charge of all this, did send down a, uh, some of the same people for a couple of days in the spring just to pull out a couple fossils that were remaining. We knew there was part of a maxilla down there, part of a face right. who wanted to get out. But then it was a really brief uh, <laughs> excavation. It was pulled out, and we have no one's been back in there since. So what we did that was part one, basically the excavation. So it hasn't, been, it hasn't been excavated since then? No. And oh, we don't okay. know how many more fossils are in there. I mean, so far, I got you. we have 1,500 fossils. Right. Um, the area of the chamber is probably at least 10 times bigger than what's been excavated so far. So will there be 10 times what's been discovered? I don't, I don't know. I can't say. Uh, but it could be. There could be you know, hundreds or even thousands more fossils down there. But at this point, you've stopped, and you're starting to look at the materials, and I assume uh, you're starting to look significantly and, and clearly and uh, sort of with a keen eye towards the uh, depositional context or what these, what these exactly. fossils found in. So, yep. From what I understand, it's a clay matrix, but I don't know very much more about that. What, what it's, do you, a, it's a clay matrix. Now, the, the bottom of this chamber had a drain. So water was coming in and going out, probably not extensive amounts of it. But the, the, this chamber and the fossils, the way they're preserved, is quite unique for South Africa in particular. Because mm-hmm. normally when you encounter fossils in South Africa, the fossils are in breccia. This is like a so cement-like structure. Cemented matrix of, uh, exactly. of calcium carbonates and a variety of materials that are just hardened. Yes, you're correct. So... What happens is fossils fall into a pit, generally. These are the caves that we talk about in South Africa. Uh, minerals fall down on top. We get water dripping, and they just calcify in this, in this hard breccia. Uh, the fossils are then found within that, and they're well-preserved and kept within mm-hmm. that matrix, and then eventually taken out in a painstaking fashion of you know, chipping away at the matrix, essentially. But this is totally different than that. These are just, they look like just a bunch of bones lying in this chamber. There's no matrix. They're in a soft clay uh, you're able to just wipe that off, essentially. Um, there's a little prep involved after when they come out. Um, right. That's very unique in that regard. Not only that there are no fauna, but that the, they're just lying there, and, and some of them are buried beneath this sort of you know, soft material. Right. So, so, that, um, so that was part one, was basically right. getting it out. Right, right, and then, right. as you said, part two uh, was 
to organize a group of people um, to come down to South Africa and study the material, study both the fossils that came out and also try to study the, the geology uh, of that chamber, which is, you know, very complicated um, just because, if nothing else, there's only, there's only certain people that can actually fit in there. Um, and so what Lee did is he wanted to make this open access. He wanted to make this accessible, and he wanted to bring in people from all different areas of paleoanthropology, not just people like me, who we happened to have worked with before on right. fossils. So he put a call out to uh, anyone who was qualified to study the material, and people submitted applications to him, and he selected 40-some individuals who specialized on different parts of the body. So he had people, a large team who worked on the cranium, the skull, uh, a large team who worked on, uh, and the postcranium, so different parts of the, the skeleton. So the feet, he had people who specialized in feet, people who specialized in hands, people who specialized in the pelvis, uh, and then I worked with people specifically. Uh, my main area of study is on uh, the backbone, vertebrae, and the rib cage, um, and so I worked on that aspect. And so this, there, there were many people down there working on different parts of the skeleton, and we worked down there for a month uh, in the summer of 2014. Okay, and we will continue with this very, very intriguing story of the discovery of a new species. Uh, entitled Homo naledi. Is that how it's pronounced, Scott? That's Homo right. Nal- That's correct. Naledi. Uh, and right after these words, stay tuned. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Tune in each week for Monica Phillips and powerful conversations. This is a thought-provoking show for business people, leaders, and entrepreneurs. We'll feature today's thought leaders and industry trendsetters from across several locations and industries. Give yourself permission to be inspired and live a fulfilling life. Be sure to listen to Powerful Conversations live every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Can you- 
My guest today is Dr. Scott Williams, who is an assistant professor of anthropology at New York University here in New York City. And he has been involved in a very fascinating study uh, pertaining to the entire human origins question, the, uh, the probable, let's call it that at this point, discovery of a new uh, species entitled Homo naledi, and it was discovered about two and a half, two two years ago now, I guess. Was it two or three years ago, Scott? Just about two years ago. Two years ago. And one of the amazing elements of this particular discovery is that it brings us back to a certain basic uh, human origins question, and that is at what point do we get into genus-specific separation? And that basically for folks who have uh, studied some anthropology and know a little bit about human origins, there are the Australopithecines, there are the Homo, and we are getting to that particular issue, which is a very fundamental one. It's more than just finding another piece of a cranium of an early hominid, but it's one that actually gets to the core of how capable we are right now of doing genus-based differentiation. Scott, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? and how this site pertains to it. Sure. So that's, you're right. That, I mean, it's a major question in paleoanthropology, what we refer to as the Australopithecus to Homo transition. So right. when did we have these sort of bipedal ape-like things, like Lucy, famous member of the species Australopithecus afarensis in East Africa. Yes. Uh, the South African variant of that is Australopithecus africanus. So when did we go from something like that to a member of our genus, Homo, something like Homo erectus. Um, earlier than Homo erectus, something like Homo habilis. Uh, so when did we get, what, what happens? What, what defines that transition? And that's something tricky. I mean, um, it's, a, it's a very difficult subject, uh, differentiating species, trying to figure out based on fragmented fossil material if you're dealing with uh, a member of a particular species or, or right. something else or something new. And that's what's most controversial here, I think, about this study, is that uh, we named a new species. A new species in our genus, Homo. And that doesn't happen very often. Um, no, and I think, I think on the grand scale, that's the big question that a lot of people, I think, will be intrigued by, because we're not looking at, 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 at tiny little miscule, minuscule lacuna. We're looking at a genus-level separation. So talk to us about the separation and how that works and, and where sure. we're at on this. So we did have some interpretations as the fossils were coming out of the ground. I mean, clearly, when I was sorting these things alongside other scientists, um, it was clear that these were something weird, maybe different. Um, mm. The proximal femur, the thigh bone, the, 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 the part that articulates with the pelvis, looked pretty primitive. Um, other parts, when we started getting pieces of the skull, um, and particularly when we got pieces of uh, the jaws, which are what people generally use to diagnose members of our genus. It's, you know, the jaws and teeth preserve very well in the fossil record. They're, the teeth are very hard, for example. And the shape of the jaw is something that people rely on very heavily for identifying um, members of our genus. Basically, if you have a jaw shaped like an ape, you are an Australopithecus. If you have a jaw that's shaped more like ours, you have something in the genus Homo. Now, that's obviously a, a somewhat minor thing to look at, just the shape of the jaw, but 
they happen to be what preserves very well in the fossil record and what people have traditionally talked about in the literature a lot. So because, when we start getting fragments, because of the sorry. survivability of those remains. Exactly. And you happen to get a lot of those. So when we started getting parts of the cranium and the jaw in particular, uh, it became clear this thing was homo. But, so let's flash forward to the workshop. This is the, the study that Lee Berger organized in the summer of 2014 in, in uh, the University of Wipotterstrand in South Africa. He brought in researchers from all over the world, all early career researchers. He wanted to bring, he wanted to make it open and wanted to make it accessible to early career people like myself. I'm, a, I'm an assistant professor, but I don't have tenure. So there were other assistant professors there. Uh, there were uh, later graduate students there as well working on this material. Um, and when we studied it... Now, that's, uh, a, that's a very strange way to do this sort of thing. Um, yeah, it's very I mean, it sort of breaks up. And I want to bring this out because uh, it's an issue in, in, in how the approach is to this. So he didn't bring any of the major senior paleoanthropologists. He was concentrating on people who are probably more familiar with high technology and the most recent developments in the, uh, in the human origins question. Yeah, it was a combination. So he did bring in some senior people who he'd worked with in the past on, on Australopithecus sediba. So mm-hmm. he brought in uh, half a dozen senior scientists who've worked on fossils extensively. Mm-hmm. Uh, he then brought, in addition to that, in early career people who, as you said, are using the, you know, uh, the brand new uh, technologies that are being used to study human evolution. So people are coming down with their laser scanners, right. uh, which scan the surface of bones using lasers, and then you could reproduce these on your computer and measure them, manipulate them, um, do all sorts of fancy analyses with them. So there's a whole team of people doing those sorts of analyses. And then sort of the, the more senior scientists were sort of taking it all in and trying to uh, put it in the framework of what they have been in, dealing with in terms of human evolution for, for the last several decades. So right. it basically we came to the point where we have this, we clearly have this, this homo-like skull, the thing um, looks most similar to probably early Homo erectus. The closest match is probably Homo erectus from the Republic of Georgia at a site called Demonisi. Right. This is Homo erectus from about 1.8 million years ago. Uh, the skull uh, looks probably most similar to that, but not identical by any means. Um, there are some parts of it, for example, that are more primitive and some parts that are more derived looking. Um, now, the skeleton is a mix of things. So the foot and hand, which were just published actually last week uh, in Nature Communications as a full study, um, look in many ways more modern. So if you do sort of um, what's called a geometric morphometrics look at the hand mm-hmm. bones, right. so basically me- uh, scanning them and putting them in a, in a 3D program, they end up looking most similar to Neanderthals in some ways. So However, they're more they're robust? More robust, Exactly. They're small, but they're really robust. They have huge muscle attachments, particularly on right. the thumb. Right. And that's combined, though, with some pretty curved fingers. The foot looks pretty, pretty uh, modern as well. It looks like that of a Neanderthal or a modern human in some ways, but there are some primitive aspects to it. Right. Uh, other parts of the body, like the ribs and, and vertebrae, um, in some ways look more like <laughs> Australopithecus. The pelvis looks more like Australopithecus in some ways. So we're met with this mixture of traits that sort of we're getting some signals of Australopithecus, and, but more signals, certainly, of Homo. 
And so the decision had to be made. What do we call this thing? We think it's a new species. There's nothing currently in existence that fits with all the aspects that we have of, this new, of these fossils. So we're going to have to call it a new species. And then we hit the point of, okay, which genus do we put the species in? That's the now, question. Yeah, that's the question. So because the skull looks like Homo, and even much of the postcranium looks more like Homo, I think Homo was the clear way to go. And that's not, I don't think that's even very controversial, that we called it Homo. What you're seeing in the, in the media, and what is, more, is certainly controversial, is that researchers who were not involved with the study, but have studied fossil hominids extensively themselves, are saying, look, this is clearly something really interesting, but it's not a new species. It should be called Homo erectus, um, is what some people are saying. And so I they're think saying that, that it was in the range of variability of Homo erectus in exactly. some way, shape, or form? You're exactly right. And what they would argue is that, look, these things are, do look different. They do look different from anything we know, but that's because every part of the body, essentially, is represented at this site. Right. Homo erectus, though, is not known from all parts of the body anywhere else. You know, there aren't um, complete hands and feet. There aren't um, a lot of uh, vertebrae. There aren't a lot of uh, pelvic bones. Uh, there are some, but they're not, maybe aren't enough to, to assess this. So the argument is that this could be an early member of Homo erectus. Now, I think, personally, that, that it comes down in part to whether you are a lumper or a splitter when you're dealing with new species, new discoveries in the fossil record. So lumpers would say, and there are many of them out there, and some of the critics are, in fact, lumpers, that, that Homo erectus as a species encompasses all sorts of things that are around from 2 million years ago until 50,000 years ago. Um, and that another species that was named uh, over 50 years ago, Homo habilis, right. is not a real species. They would say that's actually part of Homo erectus as well. So I say if you're going to use a very broad definition of what is this species, Homo erectus, then perhaps you could put this within that. But I think perhaps uh, a better way to deal with these things, and I'm not saying I'm necessarily a, an extreme splitter, but um, to name something a new species because uh, it potentially uh, looks different than anything we know, and so it's in, diff- it's in a weird context. Um, it's in South Africa, where we don't have an extensive record of Homo erectus. Uh, I think that it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a decent way to approach it. I think that the right decision uh, was to call it a new species. Now, how secure are you in assuming that what you've discovered down there, that the findings themselves based on what particular parts are represented, how secure are you in uh, assuming contemporaneity between all these remains, or are we looking at uh, hundreds, thousands of years of separation between identifiable individuals? That's a great question. Um, this is something else that some critics have brought up, is that, well, what if you're just looking at a pit where different species have fallen into it over the years? Or, as you suggested, that maybe the same species, but you've had an accumulation of individuals that have fallen in here. Right. And I think that 
looking at the material and studying it, uh, its shape and size, uh, everything is very um, similar. So, for example, any repeated element, so parts of the hip, cranium, teeth, feet, you know, there are, there are like nine hands, and every one of them, they look very, very similar. They're, it's a very homogeneous sample. Um, obviously, there is a range of ages and probably both sexes represented, right. but there doesn't seem to be a lot of sexual dimorphism. Males and females, from what we gather, seem to be relatively this similar size. We have everything from babies to elderly individuals, so obviously there's that age component that contributes to variation. Um, but in terms of similar age individuals, they look much the same. So I don't think, I think we can easily rule out that there's multiple species represented. It's one species. Uh, and we have no idea, actually, uh, about their accumulation. And this brings up a larger issue is that we actually, um, there's no date for this material yet. Uh, right. Because of the unusual and complicated uh, nature of that chamber, uh, we don't have a date. So they could be, you know, the, the morphology, the shape and size of the bones, given that they appear to be having features of Australopithecus and also Homo, suggest that they're possibly two, maybe even three million years old. But that does not rule out the possibility that this is a lineage that originated then, but persisted until relatively recently. So these well, then you could, sorry. No, then you run into all these interesting questions that sort of uh, diverge, if you will, from the actual science of a lot of it, but sure. go into much more speculative types of realms where obviously you're going to be finding people who are going to talk about symbolism, religious practices, sure. bringing in all their uh, the, the remains of their own lineages for certain types of burial and mortuary practices and that sort of thing. And I, I guess there are, is no shortage of theories for how this accumulation occurred. No. There, we, I mean, yeah, we, we've, I was not involved in that aspect of the study, tr sort of trying to figure out how they got there. Right. Um, but I was involved in talking about it and, th you know, thinking through and uh, ruling out hypotheses. And so, you know, we talked about what they, they didn't, it doesn't appear that, that there was a, a catastrophic event where they all just collapsed into this chamber. It doesn't seem to be the case. Um, it does not seem to be, it's certainly not a typical pit that you see in South Africa where individuals were either preyed upon by carnivores like big cats and dropped in or fell in, which happened at Malapa, the site where Australopithecus sediba is from. Right. Um, that didn't happen. They got in there a different way. It, as far as we know now, there's no other entrance to that chamber, that lower chamber. And as I said, it's a football field length to get to that chute that drops off into that lower chamber. Uh, and it's a quite a complicated crawl. But the idea is, the only hypothesis we've not been able to rule out is that they were deposited down this chute and ended up in that lower chamber, presumably by members of their own species. So uh, you've eliminated again, that? You've eliminated we, that? We have not eliminated that. It's the only one we have not eliminated because we, oh, I you see. know, it's, it's, it's thus far not testable. So mm -hmm. as you say, it gets into the speculation realm a bit. Um, but they weren't preyed upon by carnivores. There's no evidence for carnivore activity on the bones. Um, there's no other entrance to that chamber. Um, there's no other fauna in there, no other animals in there. So if there, if there was a pit where they were falling in, we'd expect to find other animals like we do at other sites 
in the cradle of humankind around the area, but we don't find that. So it's very unusual, and I think it's a, it's a, it's a very difficult uh, thing to approach. And you could speculate uh, all sorts of things, but it's probably best to not do that and wait until see see what the science reveals. So you're going to have to get into actually, uh, obviously you're going to have to get deeper into looking at the deposits themselves, which I assume would uh, require an, another field season just sort of to, to look around at the positional history of this, this particular place. I think so. I think that, you know, there's going to be, need to be another excavation, um, closer study of the geology, um, attempts to date the remains, and also, you know, find out how many more of these things are down there. Um, as I said before, uh, we just don't know. Right. And we will be back with a very, very intriguing discussion with today's guest, who is paleoanthropologist Scott Williams. And stay tuned. We will be back right after these words. Don't go away. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Tired of lackluster results with your marketing? Craving more leads in your business? Tune into the Mojo Marketing Edge with the team behind Mojo Global Marketing, Ira Rosen and Corey Michael Sanchez. Winners of the Marketer of the Year, they will show you how to generate daily leads, build databases of raving fans, and close deals faster than ever before. See what's hot right now and how you can tap into it to generate an endless supply of customers and clients. The Mojo Marketing Edge can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Up Close with Chris Tinney is now on Voice America Variety. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, Chris brings you the thought leaders, activists, and socially responsible entrepreneurs taking action for the environment, doing business in a new way, and helping the underprivileged. Call in or listen in every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, and learn how the small decisions you make today have a big impact on our small planet in the future. Tune in to Up Close with Chris Tinney on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Can you dig it, my guest today is Dr. Scott Williams, who participating in the uh, Rising Star excavations in South Africa, which is a finding um, that 
has strong potential to revolutionize our thinking on human origins. Now, um, without getting overly elaborate about that, the increased rate at which uh, cranial and postcranial elements of the early fossil record are being discovered are changing theories on human evolution, if not daily, certainly on an annual or biannual basis, because the richness of that record in contrast to the fragmentary nature of the record that was uh, present even as, as recently as 20, 30 years ago, is causing huge rethinking of our perspectives on the human origins question. We know a lot more about the dispersal of human types, but certainly the types of findings that uh, Dr. Williams was involved in, in which there is clearly a question about how do you separate Homo uh, from Australopithecus and, and get to these questions on on, on, on the uh, scalar level of genus. Uh, these are these are major issues. So I'd like to ask you, Scott, as somebody who grew up professionally in the field, as it was probably in the most dynamic state it was in over the past. 30 or 40 years, I mean, you're a relatively young scholar, so these findings have all sort of emerged in your lifetime. Um, and, and I assume that it's very uh, intriguing for you to look at how the big picture sorts itself out. Why don't you give us a little uh, sort of walk through, pathway through, how this finding and other findings that you've been involved with have changed your ideas on the human origins question? Yeah, that's a great question. You're actually, you're right. I mean, so ever since the mid-90s, there's been a, basically a, a virtual explosion of new, fe- new species being discovered. Almost, almost every year, there's a, new, there's a new species that's talked about, or at least uh, may, may, uh, uh, in the literature. Uh, you know, there's debates about these things. They're, they're prime for discussion and debate um, when someone names a new species. So right. if we go back to, you know, 1950, let's say, there are basically four species of fossil hominins that, we're, that we know. We have, uh, obviously, they're Neanderthals. Which was, they were discovered in the 1800s. A Homo erectus, right. also discovered initially in the 1800s. And then we have two species um, in South Africa. One is Australopithecus africanus, uh, and the other is... Uh, another species called Paranthropus robustus or Australopithecus robustus. So four species uh, known in 1951. And what you could do then is you could essentially, uh, to some degree, draw a single line between these species. So uh, Australopithecus africanus evolved into Homo erectus, which evolved into Neanderthals, which evolved into us modern humans. And then you may have the side branch of this other species that was doing something different. They were chewing on hard things, and that would be this Paranthropus robustus, these robust Australopiths doing something different. But you could draw, like, essentially one lineage of these things. Uh, Then, if we flash forward 20 years, in the 1970 or so, uh, you can add to that two more species. And I mentioned earlier that Homo habilis uh, was discovered and named about 50 years ago. Um, Another species was discovered in East Africa by the efforts of uh, the Leakies. They were involved in Homo habilis as well, but they discovered basically an East African variant of that heavy chewer in South Africa called Paranthropus boisei, nutcracker man. So clearly we have these 
these two species doing this weird thing, this weird dietary thing, and then you can still draw this lineage from Africanus, and to get to Homo erectus, you just have to insert Homo habilis. But we can still draw this single lineage, Australopithecus africanus, Homo habilis, Homo erectus, Neanderthals, modern humans. We can no longer do that. And that started, it really took off in the 2000s uh, when I was actually uh, training. Uh, I started my undergraduate career in 2000. Um, and in that year, in fact, uh, in subsequent years, there were three or four, now that I'm thinking about it, early hom- very early hominins that were discovered. One of these was nicknamed Millennium Man for the, the, the new century. This is a species called Aurorin tugenensis. And this thing was from the middle of Africa, not East Africa, not the Rift Valley, but a, a country called Chad in Central Africa. Uh, there isn't a lot preserved for it. There's some teeth and there's some, a couple of postcranial bones. Uh, the next, very next year, in 2001, a species called Cehalanthus chadensis was discovered. Uh, that's uh, in, oh, excuse me, I was, I'm out of order here. That Cehalanthus chadensis is obviously the one from Chad. Uh, Aurora tugenensis is from East Africa and Kenya. Um, I flipped them around. Uh, and another species that was actually discovered initially in the 90s, in the early 90s, called Ardipithecus. Uh, there are now two species of Ardipithecus. One discovered then, one discovered in the, in the early 2000s, uh, and those are also early. So we're talking, when I'm saying early hominin here, I'm talking about Cehalanthropus, Aurorin, and Ardipithecus, ranging from about four and a half million years ago until seven million years ago. So quite well, it a long, pushes back the margins. It pushes it back a lot, because yes. first of all, dating wasn't so great in 1950. Our dating methods have improved a whole lot, especially when we're dealing with things uh, that are really old. And so then, you know, we had Australopithecus africanus that was pushing maybe three million years. But now we go back to seven. So we've pushed that envelope back a lot. And that actually corresponds well with our predicted divergence time of humans, our lineage, from that of chimpanzees probably goes back about five to seven million years ago, and we're finding right. fossils right around from, from that time frame. So besides those guys, if we trace back into the mid to late 90s, into the 2000s, we could just add something like um, 15 to 20, depending on who you're talking to, again, the splitters or lumpers, species of hominins that, are running, that, 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 we, that we're aware of. Um, so I was involved with uh, descriptions and interpretations of a new species called Australopithecus sediba that I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. And that was also discussed in terms of the Australopithecus to Homo transition because it too um, basically had some traits that looked Australopith-like, the majority of them actually, and a few that looked like Homo. So in that case, it was decided that this thing would be called a new species, but within the genus Australopithecus, because the weight of the traits and the skull itself... Leaned that looked, way. Leaned yes. that way, exactly. This is the opposite for Homo naledi. It's leaning mm-hmm. the other way. It's yeah, right. And Homo. That's, that's the interesting thing about this. Exactly. So the other thing that this demonstrates, and Homo naledi demonstrates this as well, we don't know when it was around, 
but regardless of that, we do know now there's not a single lineage of hominins. There isn't a single species around at the same time that then uh, gives rise to another species and so forth. We have multiple species, sometimes four, five, or six species living at the same time in Africa and other parts of the world, sometimes in the same site. So in the same country, we have multiple species around at the same time. So clearly, human evolution uh, was marked by multiple lineages, multiple species that were living at the same time and adapting to different niches, doing different things. Right. So we had these heavy chewers that were doing something different than uh, the other species evolving, endurance, walking, and scavenging, and maybe some hunting as well that we think about when we talk about the species Homo erectus. Well, that's, that's one of the questions that I think people would like to know, and that would be specifically, how do their adaptive traits change in accordance to what we're seeing in the fossil record? How well can we reconstruct what they did, how they ate, what, they, what kind of tools they used, based on uh, some changes in actual physical morphology of the skeletal remains? Yeah, that's a great question. So that's what some of us do. So we're interested in being able to look at these fossils and extrapolate from those um, what they were doing in their environments. So if you study the hand, um, you're interested in the mobility of the wrist. You're interested in your ability to precision grip things and maybe talking about the potential of stone tool use. Mm -hmm. Now, very recently, this year, uh, as you're well aware, there's a new stone tool, tool tradition that was named, the Lamequian, right. uh, which pushes the date back even further for the first stone tools. Uh, we don't often find these things directly associated with early hominins, but we know that some of these guys were using, the, using stone tools. Um, if you study the feet, you're interested in how the foot is interacting with the environment. So this early species, one of these early hominins, Artipithecus ramidus, uh, is known from a foot that does not look like a foot we'd expect for a hominin to have. It doesn't have a big toe that's in line with the rest of the foot. It has a divergent big toe. So it wasn't, if it was walking around bipedally, it wasn't towing off on the big toe like we do. It was doing something right. different. So right. probably we have in these, in a lot of the Australopiths, members of the genus Australopithecus and members of earlier genera like Ardipithecus, Aurora, and Cephalanthus. Uh, the retention or reinvasion of an arboreal or tree-living environment. So they're spending time in the trees. And if you're a small hominin uh, on this landscape, this sort of mixed woodland, grassland habitat, you're not going to want to be hanging out on the ground too much when you have large carnivore predators around. Of course, yeah. So that type of mobility was sort of uh, perpetuated by, and, and certainly is indicated by, by the record. Yes. Yep. So we basically get, when, when we talk about the, the Australopithecus to Homo transition, uh, we generally talk about a transition from uh, arboreal, so tree living, partially tree living, uh, bipeds that are also coming down to the ground and walking around on two legs, to a species that is spending more time on the ground. It's what would be what we call a habitual biped. Mm -hmm. uh, and it would be then exploiting more resources that are found on the ground. So they're not eating as much fruit. They're eating more uh, sort of grassy sedge material. They're eating tubers. They're eating scavenging, perhaps. They're hunting small game, 
early on. And then we transitioned later into, of course, uh, big game hunting and that sort of thing. We only have a few minutes left. Where do you see the thrust of early hominid studies moving in the next couple of years? Well, I think that some of the new technologies allow us to do things that just weren't possible in the past. So now, not only can we scan the surfaces of these bones and then very closely analyze, for example, joint surfaces and uh, measure detailed morphologies that you just can't do with a pair of calipers, um, but you can also CT scan these things. So you can look at the internal structure of bones, and that's becoming something people are doing. And you can talk about uh, the way they moved based on the way their bone density is situated. Um, that's a big area. But I think that what Homo Naledi has, has demonstrated is that, look, there's this, this whole new species. We've got every part of the body represented. And, you know, we've done it here. We've focused in naming this thing on the skull. The skull is right. the most studied thing in uh, not just the hominin fossil record, but all animals uh, that have heads, the skull is what's focused on it in the teeth. And that's great because it's very, very informative. But I think what people are going to be doing more now is focusing on other parts of the body. So what does the pelvis tell you about locomotion? And, and what does, you know, you can actually address locomotion in the pelvis and the leg and the arms and the backbone. And then what does that tell you about taxonomy? So how does that address what we call this thing, Homo or Australopithecus or who knows, something else entirely. And is the pace of discovery going to continue at this rate? Because as many of us know, research for science is not exactly on the priority list for uh, congressional people. Uh, We know that. We know that the NSF has been shrinking constantly. Do you think we have the ability, uh, certainly in terms of funding agencies and moving forward, to continue to undertake this type of critical knowledge that tells us so much about the human condition? I think things will be discovered. Um, You know, as you mentioned, the situation at NSF and granting agencies agencies in general is is quite abysmal and uh, very competitive. It's hard for uh, people like me to get grants to go off and do these sorts of studies. Um, but, um, you know, we we get by and, and these things are discovered. I think that what Lee Berger did is something that he's basically come up with, coming up with novel ways of searching for hominins. So instead of going out yourself, which he did for decades before he discovered uh, Australopithecus sediba, uh, he recruited these cavers. So these guys are, these are people who do this recreationally, and they're going to go off and explore caves. So why not, while they're doing that, you know, take a look out for fossils? And this is exactly what happened. And, you know, they're enjoying the publicity they're getting uh, for right. being the ones who actually discovered these things. And on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to end our discussion. But it's a, certainly an optimistic note, because certainly over the past 10, 20 years, the exponential increase in our knowledge of the fossil record and our ability to interpret it has just skyrocketed. Thank you so much, Scott. I appreciate your time and your efforts in explaining these critical issues to us. And uh, good luck in your future work. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. And on that note, we will see you next week or we will talk to you next week on another topic on Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, 21st Century Archaeology. Thank you so much. 
Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.